good afternoon or perhaps early evening, depending on how you think of it, everybody. If, if you have been studying at your book school today, I hope your first day was mind-blowing. And, and if you are a member of the local community, you are most cordially welcome. My name is Michael Spars. I'm the director of Rare Book School. And um, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this, the first of our summer lecture series. Our lecture today is an AEH Sharp-sponsored Living American History and Primary Documents Lecture, and we're very grateful for that sponsorship from two august organizations, the National Endowment for the Humanities and SHARP as well. S. Max Ellison, a scholar of the history of early modern colonialization and the history of cartography, is Professor of History and Associate Chair of the Corcoran Department of History here at the University of Virginia. He studied at Cornell University and at the University of Oxford before receiving his doctorate from Johns Hopkins University in 1999. His first book, Plantation Enterprise, in colonial South Carolina from Harvard University Press, describes how planters and slaves adapted to the volatile environments of the Carolina Lowcountry. Plantation Enterprise was awarded the George C. Rogers Prize by the South Carolina Historical Society and the Theodore Salutos Memorial Award by the Agricultural History Society. You know an academic monograph did well when Harvard University Press issued it as a paperback five years after it was published in Harvard. His second book, The New Map of Empire, how Britain Imagined America Before Independence, Harvard University Press, 2017, examines British attempts to reform American empire through surveying and cartography in the generation before the American Revolution. The new map of empire features a free companion website with a digital archive of more than 250 maps, I think they're 257 to be exact, and charts discussed in the book. It was a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize in 2017 and received the John Langman Book Award for U.S. Maritime History by the North American Society for Oceanic History. Professor Edelman co-directs two digital projects, Map Scholar and Visual Eyes, both platforms for geospatial visualization in the humanities. He also co-directs the UVA Early American Seminar at Monticello, a research community for faculty and graduate students in Charlottesville. We are delighted to have him among our number this evening. 
Please join me in welcoming Professor Edison. just a few months after the events it depicts. 
But some two decades before Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill, cartography had already shifted to favor the military surveyor's eye. From the mid-1750s, the British mapping of America increased dramatically. These maps were different from those that came before. They rendered coastlines with precision derived from rigorous on-site observation. They populated flat paper landscapes with shading that brought cliffs and hillsides uh, into three dimensions. And they magnified the human geography of colonial settlement, revealing the outlines of cultivated fields and even the footprints of buildings. In short, military, uh, British military and imperial surveyors recreated early America as a world that you could see as if you were there. Officials planning colonies and campaigns from London used these maps to visualize distant frontiers. And those who might never leave the comfort of their libraries in England traveled in their imaginations to these remote places on which the fate of the British Empire depended. Britain sent teams of surveyors along with military forces to North America and the West Indies in the 1750s, 60s, and 70s. These mapmakers produced a remarkable surge in maps, plans, and charts. Before these great wars for American empire, Britain's mapping of America was episodic, uneven, and infrequent. When Charles II created the Council on Trade and Plantations in 1672, the king charged the Lords of Trade to, in his words, procure exact maps, plaques, or charts of all and every of our set plantations abroad. The Lords of Trade began by acquiring maps produced by others to illustrate Britain's far-flung uh, far places from Newfoundland to Barbados and beyond. Some of the maps were original manuscripts that codified the working knowledge of long-distance navigators. Others were well-regarded publications produced on copperplate printing presses in London, Amsterdam, Paris, and Frankfurt. England's first official map archive was derivative. It did not involve the state in making its own maps as a regular and organized activity. The Board of Trade sent questionnaires to colonies, asking for new maps to show boundaries, populations, strategic regions. Sometimes colonial governors complied with these requests, providing additional maps alongside written reports. Long before Britain employed cartography as a tool of empire, its great rivals, Spain and France, had created active cartographic services that mapped American places. Throughout the colonial period, British authorities relied on commercial maps to disseminate official and unofficial images of British America to broad audiences. The arrival of trained army and admiralty surveyors in America during the 1750s and 1760s brought a new capacity for mapmaking to North America and West Indies. During the Seven Years' War, known as the French and Indian War in America, Great Britain jump-started a mini-cartographic revolution. Colonial governors drew on the expertise of these military surveyors to illustrate their reports to Whitehall. But the real growth in the number of maps dispatched from America to Britain took place after the Treaty of Paris in 1763, when the British state began undertaking its own systematic surveys of its American possessions after the war. Most more surveyors arrived during the American Revolution, more uh, making maps that planned campaigns and documented battles. As the Seven Years' War began, a series of important regional maps of British and North America appeared in print that drew from these military surveys. These maps brought together deepening knowledge of 
the Atlantic coast, where growing colonial populations laid claim to an expanding zone of settlement. These new maps linked this knowledge of well-settled places with new information from survey expeditions into the interior. John Green's new map of Nova Scotia made an aggressive assertion of British sovereignty over the contested lands of the Maritime Northeast in 1755. As British and French commissioners wrangled over where British Nova Scotia ended and French Acadia began, this map argued for the continuity of British land claims from the Atlantic coast all the way to the St. Lawrence River. Green's map of the inhabited part of New England, also from 1755, makes another claim of British power, this time based on the region's surging populations and its imposition of civil order. Although the topography of New England's landscape is sketched lightly across this map's surface, its civil geography imposed a dense matrix of provincial, county, and township boundaries across the region. Lewis Evans' general map of the middle colonies connected new knowledge of the continent to long-established jurisdictions closer to the coast. Evans' own participation in a 1749 diplomatic mission to the Iroquois country added new specificity to a map that reached deep into the interior. Such a map was a prospectus for future colonization. It helped Britons at home and abroad imagine mainland colonies as empires in miniature, poised to expand into a vast continental frontier. Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson pictured Virginia in, a similar, in similar ways in a map first published in 1753. They brought together the knowledge they had accumulated as boundary surveyors and land speculators to reveal new western landscapes. The map's cartouche celebrated Virginia's signature staple commodity, tobacco, and made no attempt to conceal how British America's most populous colony depended on African slavery. Yet the map's innovation was not its representation of Chesapeake Bay or its connection to the Atlantic economy. Here, the interior appears for the first time less as a stylized jumble of mountains and more as a place that could be claimed and colonized. Coherent bridges separate lush river valleys already named and enclosed by provincial boundaries, ready for separate occupation. To the south, surveyor William de Brown produced a masterpiece. 1757. His map of South Carolina and part of Georgia charted the expanding plantation landscape of the coastal low country with startling new precision. De Brown geo-referenced the property boundaries uh, maps his office had surveyed to make grants of land along the Combahee, Cusquehatchee, and Savannah rivers. Enslaved Africans remade these fertile swamplands into productive fields that generated record harvests of rice, South Carolina's staple export commodity. The map's cartouche pictured enslaved indigo makers beading and cutting indigo dye, which was fast becoming a second lucrative export commodity. A finely detailed network of rivers reached from this uh, repressive, productive coastal plain into the Carolina backcountry, where new townships were surveyed to anchor new settlements. This picture of the southeast suggests that uh, suggests that landscape um, sorry suggests that this landscape of plantations created in the coastal zone would expand, spreading slavery, plantations, and profits along new riversides into the future. This map held out the prospect that these blank spaces in the interior would become someday as densely inscribed as the plantation. 
Together, these regional maps showcased the history of British colonization in North America. They brought together official records of landholding, boundaries, and civil jurisdictions with knowledge gained from new exploratory journeys. Together, they staked a strong British claim to possession and articulated a desire for territorial expansion. By the middle decades of the 18th century, British North America was no longer a collection of separate colonies. Instead, it appeared on these regional maps, all published in the mid-1750s, as a continent of empire, one that, deeply entrenched, that was deeply entrenched and poised for expansion. The most celebrated American map of the century was produced during this fruitful decade for colonial cartography, John Mitchell's A Map of the British and French Dominions in North America. This map stitched together these regional views of British North America into a continental vision Mitchell's map projected bold British claims to sovereignty over virtually all of Eastern North America. The head of Britain's Board of Trade at the time, the Earl of Halifax, personally recruited John Mitchell to undertake this map, gave him access to Britain's archives of manuscript map images, and when these proved uh, inadequate, commanded colonial governors to draft new maps of their provinces so that John Mitchell could compile a state-of-the-art synthesis. Mitchell's map is a fantasy of dominion. Its charter boundary lines cross ter territories still inhabited and controlled by Native Americans. It anticipated the rapid reproduction of American settler populations that would soon extend these jurisdictions to the West. Bolstered by the credibility that came with compiling and synthesizing the manuscript record of settlement, this map pictured a mainland empire reaching across North America. These maps of America published as the Seven Years' War began, illustrate Britain's imperial ambitions, but also reveal the limits of its geographic knowledge. When they arrived to challenge France in North America, British officers realized that the maps they had were simply too vague to guide the deployment of troops in the field. In institutional terms, the British military lagged, <coughs> lagged its rivals on the continent in the practice of high-resolution military mapping. It was just beginning to develop standards, practices, and personnel needed to create truly useful military maps. A clear British vision for military mapping was forged by General William Roy in Scotland in the 1740s. Charged to create new military-grade maps of the rebellious Scottish Highlands, Roy applied the most sophisticated methods for topographic mapping to this strategic challenge. Because a commander never knew where the forces, his forces might have to be moved across the landscape to quash an uprising or pursue guerrilla fighters, ideal military maps pictured every topographic detail of a contested territory. With such maps at hand, a commander could move troops to any place at any moment. The maps Roy created in Scotland set a new standard for high-resolution topographic. Georg Ludwig learned the art and science of military mapping as a lieutenant in the army of the Duchy of Saxe in Germany. He moved to Paris, where uh, young Lieutenant Ludwig changed his name to Georges Louis Le Rouge, and by 1740 became one of France's most prolific map publishers. This map documents a strategically important place with a bloody history. The Isthmus of Chignecto was one of the most contested places in the Atlantic world. The French insisted that it marked the boundary between Acadia and Nova Scotia. The British disagreed. After years of attacks and counterattacks, a fleet of British warships 
uh, and transports disgorged over 2,000 troops to decide this issue in 1755. They captured Fort Beausjour and drove the French out, a critical early victory in the contest over Canada during the Seven Years' War. La Rouge's map acknowledges this victory by noting the new British name for the captured fort, Fort Cumberland. This image features the key elements of military topographic map. It is a picture of the landscape divided into riverside lowlands and wooded highlands, cultivated fields and swampy pastures. The dikes and irrigation channels for which Acadian farmers were famous create landmarks that show this landscape at human scale. Shading with pastures pictures the hilly terrain of this peninsula. The careful delineation of rivers and roadways show how troops might cross this territory and where it remained. Ideal military surveys pictured the terrain at a scale of one to two inches to the mile, a resolution that revealed details such as buildings, gardens, and fence lines. Instructors at the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich and the Royal Naval Academy at Portsmouth were beginning to teach budding engineers and surveyors how to make maps and charts to this exacting new standard. British regiments also became a magnet for skilled engineers from the continent. Uh, with more advanced survey and mapping traditions. We can find many non-English or anglicized names among the creators and contributors to many revolutionary era maps, including Samuel Holland, Robert Rahm, Charles Blaskowitz, Claude Joseph Sauvier, and J.W. Duvan. These names reflect this migration of European mapping talent to the British military in this era. Military surveyors arrived in America to fight the Seven Years' War with pens, paper, and compasses. They planned routes through the woods, designed fortifications, and recorded the results of battlefield engagements. Their high-resolution manuscript maps reported the progress of the war to authorities in Britain. After the forts were built, battles won or lost, officials shared these hand-drawn maps with commercial publishers, especially the prolific Thomas Jeffries. Jeffries was among the first London map publishers who used his official title, geographer, to the king to obtain manuscript maps from the battlefield. He engraved their images on copper plates and printed them for public consumption. In 1768, Jeffries and his fellow publisher Robert Sayer released a massive atlas that compiled American maps, many of which were created as military instruments during the Seven Years' War. This atlas, the General Topography of North America and the West Indies, tells the story of Britain's triumph over France. This overstuffed atlas of American places invited Britons to revisit the military victories celebrated in 1763. The general topography dazzles the eye with the immensity of new territory that had been acquired at such a high cost of blood and treasure. This index map shows the coverage of the Atlas's 93 maps, plans, and charts. At the broadest scale were general maps like John Green's uh, chart of the Atlantic Ocean with the British, French, and Spanish settlements in North America and the West Indies. From this place at the center of the New World, British sea power was positioned to take command of the whole. If we remove these grand hemispheric maps from the index, we can see the outlines of the important medium-scale maps of British America that demonstrate command over North American regions and Caribbean islands. Remove these, and what remains are the military maps that surveyors created during the war to fortify strategic sites and stage attacks by land and sea. The general topography was a patriotic celebration of Great Britain's great victory in America 
but it did not paste over some of the nation's most devastating defeats. The humbling opening chapter of the war began with General Edward Braddock's doomed march into the Pennsylvania backcountry to evict the French from Fort Duquesne at the forks of the Ohio River. The tale of Braddock's catastrophic advance begins by showing the arrangement of the general's famous flying column of 1,300 men arrayed along the road they had carved through the forest in 1755. On July 9th, French and native forces routed Braddock's troops, leaving Braddock dead and most of his officers and men dead or wounded. We don't know much about Robert Orb's training as a surveyor. We do know that this 30-year-old British Army lieutenant served as one of Braddock's aides to and created an indelible record of this painful defeat. His plans create a powerful illusion for the viewer who turned the pages of, General, of Jeffrey's general topography. From the scouts and cavalry officers in the vanguard at the front of this long line to the baggage carts in the back, these images position us as viewers hovering above the action. And yet a closer look shows that these trees aren't real. They're just a stylized pattern representing woodlands. We don't see humans, wagons, horses, or artillery pieces, but rather unit symbols in perfect alignment along the straight, clear path through the woods. When combined with other maps, they tell a coherent spatial story of defeat. On Orm's plan of the field of battle and disposition of the troops as they were on the march at the time of the attack, we zoom out from the high-resolution picture of Braddock's road to take in his objective, Fort Duquesne. We see the troops approaching, frozen in time, just before the bullets flew, as the title puts it, as they were on the march at the time of the attack. Orm's use of shading reveals the topographic relief that military surveyors were trained to show. Britain had hoped to drive France from its frontier stronghold, but instead suffered a grave defeat at the Battle of Monongahela. Orm and Jeffries retold this national tragedy in a series of nested images at multiple scales of representation. Such images, once engraved, arranged, titled, annotated, and presented, along with other maps of this atlas, immersed British readers within a remote and vital American place. Robert Gordon created these images to help plan Braddock's march. He revised them to create a patriotic record of a notorious military defeat for British audiences. He even drafted a manuscript journal of the events, although this account was never published during his lifetime, Orm set out to do what many trained military engineers did during the 18th century, to use their skills to make money and gain renown in the hopes of promotion. Trained mapmakers knew they could use their skills to advance their careers, and Robert Orm was definitely a man in the make. In addition to producing the maps that Jeffries published in the general topography, Joshua Reynolds painted his portrait. It shows Orm in his uniform as a member of Braddock's Coldstream Guards. This image helped him capitalize on his celebrity as a survivor of this famous battle. We see Orm here as a tragic heroic figure, full of swag and confidence. Although of humble social rank, this picture emphasized Orm as a man of skill and sensibility, a modern officer, whose talents promised to advance him to wealth and renown. Orm resigned his army commission in 1756. And then he eloped with Audrey Townsend, the volatile daughter of Charles Townsend, a senior British official who had played a crucial role in the coming of the American Revolution. As Orr recognized, high-resolution military maps were valuable because they allowed commanders to see contested territories from within the landscape. This quality also made such maps highly compelling to audiences who wanted to experience 
the distant places on which so much depended for themselves. The war now kindled in America, wrote Samuel Johnson in 1756, has incited us to survey and delineate the immense wastes of the Western continent by stronger motives than mere science or curiosity could ever have supplied. Britain's poured over images of remote American places during and after the Seven Years' War. British armchair generals read published accounts of battles and located the scenes of action on newly published maps. These, in Johnson's words, enabled the imagination to wander over the lakes and mountains to visualize the grand and expansive New World Empire. From 1758, Britons read yearly summaries of the progress of the Seven Years' War in Edinburgh's History of the Present War, a recurring essay published in the annual register. They bought, they bought newly published maps to see the places that were described. Not every reader could afford the six guineas it cost to purchase the general topography of North America when it came out in 1768. And uh, according to the currency converter of the UK National Archives, uh, six guineas uh, uh, would now be worth about uh, 550 pounds sterling, about $700, or the value of one cow, or 61 days of work by skilled tradesmen. So a pretty considerable investment. You had to have the resources and the willingness to buy a work like this. Question, what is it worth now? A lot more. <laughs> But many more could afford individual sheet maps and cheaper collections. From 1763, uh, they could inspect the 34 plans reduced from actual surveys published in John and Marianne Rogue's A Set of Plans and Forts in America. Like Jeffreys, the John, uh, John Rogue used his connections to British officials to get access to original military manuscripts so that he could engrave them for printing. Britain did not have a state map publishing office, and senior officials approved the release of military manuscript maps in print. These precisely rendered images demonstrated British mastery over distant places to British, French, and other audiences. They also encouraged readers at home to, and abroad to engage in patriotic reflection about the costs and benefits of imperial warfare. In 1769, John Knox explained the purpose of his new book, an historical journey of the campaigns in North America. He helped to, quote, afford the most sublime of all entertainments to the generous mind by placing before him past scenes of glory, in which he has either shared personally, as military officers, or shall share in review by patriotic sympathy. In other words, those who bought his book and looked at its maps uh, could uh, engage in a patriotic moment uh, in a way that was highly visual those who paid to subscribe to the book ahead of time saw their names printed in the copies they received when it was published. Here, between the covers of Knox's account of the military campaigns of the Seven Years' War, they joined aristocrats who had commanded troops in the field uh, as uh, patrons of this massive uh, summer. When they opened these books, they could experience these scenes of British glory and defeat vicariously. Such texts and maps gave British readers and viewers a way to participate from their armchairs and with their eyes and imaginations in the story of empire as a collective national enterprise. For more than a decade after the peace of 1763, audiences clamored for maps and accounts of the Seven Years' War. As we have seen, George Louis Le Rouge published his map of Chignecto in Paris in 1755. 
In that same year, Thomas Jeffries obtained a copy of this French map and re-engraved his own version of it, complete with new annotations and an English title. A large and particular plan of Chignecto Bay and the circumjacent country with the forts and settlements of the French, till dispossessed by the English in June 1755. Jeffries included this copied map in his general topography in 1768. His version of LaRouge's map retained the finely rendered coastlines, soundings, the carefully engraved presentation of topographic relief in this landscape of fields, hills, and meandering rivers. Jeffries also added in tidy engraved script a written narrative of the events of the battle. This was an invitation to viewers to read the narrative and trace their fingers along the surface of this map to locate the places it described. Jeffries describes in this narrative how a force of 2,400 men under the command of Colonel Monkton arrived at the British Fort St. Lawrence on June 1st, 1755. This force crossed the river uh, crossed the river Missaquash, where British troops took fire from a French blockhouse. The superior British force overwhelmed this French outpost, which uh, the French put to the torch as they retreated to Fort Beausjour. The British followed. They set up their cannon and began firing on Fort Beausjour on the 13th. By the 16th, the French had capitulated. On the 17th, Colonel Scott took possession of the fort, hoisted the English flag, and renamed it Fort Cumberland in honor of the Duke of Cumberland, the younger son of George II, and one of Britain's chief war commanders. The rest of Jeffrey's text summarizes the aftermath of the battle, the ordnance that was captured, the soldiers and civilians taken prisoner, and the numbers of dead and wounded. Jeffrey's narrative tells the story of the unfortunate Ensign Hay, who was captured by Indians and taken to the French fort. There, while eating breakfast with his French captors, he died along with three French officers, casualties of a well-aimed British cannonball. As the fort fell, the French lost eight officers and 51 soldiers. Three Mi'kmaq Indians allied with the French also died in the attack, including their satchel. When Thomas Manti published his History of the Late War in North America and the Islands of the West Indies in 1772, this map was the first of more than a dozen military maps and charts that folded all of the volume to illustrate its many battle narratives. Manti offered a detailed five-page narrative of this battle that told the story of the successful British campaign to take Fort Beausjour and force a French evacuation. This image began as a French military manuscript. As a published image, it enabled the French and then the English to take stock of the events in this remote corner the North American Northeast as the Seven Years' War began. And years later, it resurfaced again to illustrate a definitive historical account that encouraged British readers to relive these events. Such maps help readers imagine this remote place and what it looked like to the troops who passed through it. At its most granular, this map described the experiences of war at the scale of the human body. Among the casualties for the British was one major preble who, in Jeffrey's narrative, described it. He received a slight wound in the shoulder, and Ensign Tom was wounded in the thigh. Military maps began as instruments of war, but they had a prominent afterlife as published maps that allowed British readers to experience the war for themselves in a way that was visceral, sensory, and compelling. 
At the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain's most experienced military surveyors remained in America to undertake new sur surveys of acquired territory. Samuel Holland, a trained Dutch surveyor, came to British North America as an officer in the Royal American Regiment. His surveys aided in the capture of the French fort at Louisbourg in 1758. He taught Admiralty surveyor James Cook how to conduct plain table coastal surveys, skills that Cook would apply during his famous voyages in the South Pacific. Together, Holland and Cook drafted new charts of the St. Lawrence River that proved vital to the successful British conquest of Quebec in 1759. Holland joined other surveyors to create a new high-resolution map of occupied Canada. This performance earned him the attention of the Board of Trade. In 1764, they appointed him Surveyor General for the Northern District of their new General Survey of North America. His first task was to survey the island of St. John in the Gulf of St. Lawrence to the same exacting standards. Now called Prince Edward Island, the island of St. John was an early focal point for the Board of Trade's program planned colonization in America. If Britain could populate this island with colonists the planned land, they could secure this region from any future attempts by France to reclaim it. By inhabiting St. John, they could implant British power permanently at the point of entry to British Canada. They charged Samuel Pollan to survey this island, assess its suitability for agriculture and fishing and lumbering, and divide it into massive 20,000 acres. In 1767, these townships were awarded by ballot to petitioners who promised to develop each of them into a prosperous place of settlement. This published map proclaimed to the world that Britain was determined to defend its new frontiers with aggressive schemes of colonization. Far to the south, in the Gulf of Mexico, the Admiralty ordered Captain George Galt to survey the Gulf Coast, now claimed as part of the British colonies of East and West Florida. Gaul's survey of Pensacola established safe navigation into this sheltered harbor, ideally situated to project British sea power into the Gulf of Mexico and serve as a base for intensifying trade with Spanish America. Like many maps and charts created to secure British and Britain's new territories after 1763, this one was engraved from publication in J.F.W. De Atlantic Neptune Atlas. Beyond the precise new picture of the coastline, Gaul's maps sketched in the topography of the interior. As in the island of St. John, British officials granted townships and other land rights to prospective colonists, hoping to secure this new acquisition by encouraging its occupation by settlers. From 1764 to 1771, William de Brome charted the coast of Peninsular Florida for the border trade. As the Surveyor General for the Southern District, his task was to survey Florida's, Florida's Atlantic coast and identify river inlets that might make good sites for new plantation settlements. De Brom's survey of the St. John's River around St. Augustine sparked a land boom that drew speculators to claim tracts of Florida land, the first of many overheated real estate schemes for which the Sunside, Sunside, Sunshine State has become notorious. His new surveys of the Florida Keys were the first to establish safe channels of navigation into this notoriously dangerous area for shipping. This German version of one of his charts synthesizes George Gold's surveys of the coast with de Brown's charts of the Atlantic coast and the Keys. Together, they helped Britain lay claim to new colonies with authoritative geographic knowledge. 
In the Caribbean, the Treaty of Paris ceded Dominica, St. Vincent, Grenada, and Tobago to Great Britain. The British plan for these islands was to rapidly develop them as new centers for African slavery and sugar production. The ceded island land commission sent surveyors to each of these islands to create comprehensive property maps. These divided every acre fit for cultivation into a numbered tract. These tracts were auctioned off to the highest bidder in London in the 1760s. In 1776, Chief Surveyor John Byers published a series of maps of the ceded islands. Drawn at the high resolution scale of a half mile to an inch, these maps divided tropical islands into mountainous interiors and arable, farmable, coastal plains ripe for sugar. They demonstrated, track by track, how Great Britain claimed and profited from these new sugar pockets. A couple of years after these ceded island maps appeared in print in London, George Louis LaRouge incorporated them into a new collection of 13 Caribbean maps, uh, published in Paris. Just as Thomas Jefferson copied LaRouge's map of Chinecto in 1755, LaRouge returned the favor, creating new versions of Byers and Jeffrey's maps, publishing them in Paris in 1778. Although these maps originated originated to advance Britain's strategic and political aims of empire, in LaRouche's hands, they became tantalizing images for French audiences. These new high-resolution maps of the Caribbean enabled French map viewers to reach across the ocean in their imaginations and picture these exotic, brutal, reductive places over which their rival empires contended. British surveyors spent the 1760s and 1770s mapping territories in America in the hopes of defending, populating, and enriching a vast Atlantic empire. But when the rupture of the American War of Independence broke out, new military views of coastlines, islands, and interiors mobilized this new knowledge for a very different purpose, to make war on America. Charles Blaskowitz served as an assistant surveyor to Samuel Holland and worked on the general survey in North America. In 1764, he arrived on the coast of Rhode Island to charter for the survey. A decade later, on the eve of the revolution, he returned with a new survey to perfect the chart's plan and report. He undertook to map the countryside around Rhode Island at the invitation of the colony's principal farmers, whom he listed by name in the published chart. Below this acknowledgment of the local gentry who funded the project, Blaskowitz sang Rhode Island's praises. He noted its history of religious toleration, its delightful summers, and its many advantages for commerce, husbandry, and agriculture. But before Blaskowitz could publish his chart, the Revolutionary War disrupted this narrative of ongoing colonial development. On December 6, 1776, following years of violent resistance to customs officials in Rhode Island, British Major General Sir Henry Clinton sent an expeditionary force that invaded Clinton used a manuscript copy of Blaskowitz's chart to organize the town's occupation by 7,000 British soldiers. When William Fagan published it in 1778, he dedicated the chart to Hugh, Earl Percy, the commander Clinton left behind to defend the town. New annotations located the works and batteries raised by the Americans in their failed stand against this assault. These and other images of revolutionary engagement appear in Fagan's new compilation of American called the North American Atlas. It is one of many examples in revolutionary map collections that show the abrupt shift of imperial mapping in the late 1770s. Britain's new maps of empire, created to develop the empire through new colonization, were quickly repurposed to enable British forces to conquer rebellious American colonies. 
In the second half of the 18th century, British surveyors came to North America and the West Indies in unprecedented numbers. Their images of coastlines, forts, and frontiers helped win the war with France and pictured a triumphant British Atlantic world. The American Revolution shattered this vision of peace, commerce, and settlement. Once tasked to promote an expansive American empire, military mapmakers applied their knowledge to make war on American colonists. These reflections that I've shared with you today emerged from my work with the Seymour Schwartz Collection of North American Maps here at the University of Virginia. Schwartz, in his book, The Mapping of America, that he co-authored with Ralph Ehrenberg, used Revolutionary War Maps to tell the story of how disconnected colonies became a unified nation. Today, I've asked slightly different questions about maps from this remarkable map collection. How do they reflect new methods for military topographic and coastal survey in war and in peace? How did such maps influence the ways in which map readers imagined distant places? The American Revolution was a battle of ideas defined by notions of liberty, tyranny, slavery, and freedom. But it was also a series of engagements that took place in real geographic space. Warfare in North America opened up these spaces to view throughout the British world. On both sides of the Book readers and map viewers watched an imperial world fall apart in high resolution. What I have called the surveyor's eye was a rigorous way of looking and, uh, and representing geographic space. It zoomed in on sites of conflict and pictured the national natural world with startling clarity. Such a view gained enormous authority in the second half of the 18th century. It gave commanders the confidence to dispatch forces to remote places, and it created images in which map viewers immersed themselves as they meditated on the meanings of Britain's global empire as it was convulsed by war. Thank
hear that first journalist who come to anybody in the Did I consider them kind of journalists? Of they were, like, they were not trained as journalists. They were military surveyors. Um, first job was to build the forts and have the roads and make the plan. But they understood that um, their skills gave them an entrepreneurial advantage. They could be the ones that published their story and illustrate it to a claim. Not only did they make money by some of the things they had authored, they used their maps as kind of showpieces to get the attention of senior British officials so they could get appointments. So, for instance, Samuel Holland, who matched Prince Edward Island, he made the Surveyor General for General Surveyor of America. He uh, produced an incredible map of uh, occupied Canada that he then took and presented to senior officials of the king. Um, this performance of this beautiful map learned him his position, which then later led to him being a largest landowners in Canada after the American Revolution, a wealthy uh, person. These mapmakers did not come from uh, wealthy families. They came from humble social ranks. So they saw in their unique skill set the way to really jump uh, into the higher ranks of society. So they, they were commissioned officers in, in uh, service of the king. The maps uh, and the details they drew were not considered government property in those days. They, I guess they might have been, but Britain made a tactical decision since it didn't have its own demographic service. And you know, the Spanish and the French were also very much, much more wary about releasing strategic information in published maps, and not because the British were so predatory these empires. Uh, the British decided that not only did they have the capacity to make them, it was better to just get them all out there because those maps, as they circulated uh, to audiences around the world, uh, demonstrated British knowledge, British control. British, uh, the expansiveness of the British Empire. So they wanted that permission. But they had that permission. That permission was almost always granted. Um, the patriotic system of 18th century British society is very foreign to us. It feels like fraud and corruption. But that's the way people lived in this society. Political governors had side businesses and monopolies. Everyone had their cut. Um, and so it was seen as a legitimate way of, of uh, making money and rising money. Thomas Jeffries and others presiding over a busy, busy 
workshops uh, that uh, produce as many copies of these maps as they could have recruited this. Yeah, especially some of the early slides had uh, multiple dates for the, the maps. Mm -hmm. And uh, what were they represented? Were they um, uh, the same plates being used? Uh, uh, were they retouched in some way? Were they updated? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, map collectors uh, and scholars call these the different states of the map. So it's the same copy plate. Uh, but, you know, uh, I've done a study, uh, you can find it at this website here, on uh, one particular map uh, that I uh, has like, 11 or 12 different states. It's Emmanuel Bowen's New and Accurate Map of North America that goes from the first edition is in 1755 that kind of shows the British and the French and their standoff in North America. And then every time there's a new war and a new peace treaty, Bowen went back and, and uh, poured acid on the stuff he wanted to erase and recreate the copy plate and reprinted it. Because the, you know, everyone wants the new and accurate map, right? The most up-to-date information. They're hungry for that new knowledge. And that's the way you keep selling maps, right? You give people a little bit uh, new and improved version. It's capitalism, uh, which we're very familiar. So these maps would be reprinted in multiple editions, especially as the boundaries and the battles of interest change. It's funny you mention that because one of the offices that was produced during this era by Sayer and Ben and the Rose of the American military pocket maps. So all these surveyors, like the Brahm and Holland, all the people I told you about surveyors who went to the prior to the war, they were um, uh, synthesized into new, smaller editions uh, that showed a map of northern British colonies, the middle British colonies, the southern British colonies, the West Indies, and a few other places. And they were compiled into this little atlas that. Um, some military officers actually had a special leather holster commission that would fit in perfectly. You can see how useful this would be to a port that's spread out over a hemisphere and a globe, really. That if you're corresponding with another commander in another theater of the war, you want to have the same map to, to make a plan or to understand what's happening. So it's also called the American Military Holster. But that's a really great example of these maps that were made for a totally different purpose. They were made for development, economic growth, colonialism. And they were instantly valuable as military documents that could buy troops. So, yes, uh, the other place where coarser, smaller maps were produced for mass consumption are the big magazines of the 18th century. Gentleman's Magazine uh, is kind of like the New Yorker of its day. It was a magazine of literature, politics, and history, uh, and it included many uh, smaller maps that derived from these more complex small maps of the smaller size. So, even if you didn't have the 60 days of a cow or you know, the 60 days of labor to, to buy a big uh, expensive atlas, you might have enough to, to get an addition of the Very, very well surveyed and researched and very verbally by our students. 
And some that are essentially copied from other maps, some which are accurate, and some which are kind of copied from that. And then they would fill in the blanks. Uh, but there were exploratory voyages. So the map of Virginia, um, Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, was one of the authors. He was now one of the leading uh, leaders here in Alvaro County who made uh, storage in land speculation. Uh, just a few miles from here in Shadwell, where Thomas Jefferson grew up, uh, one of the rooms of the house was loaded to his mapping equipment. And uh, many of the maps that I show you today were available to Thomas Jefferson as a child as he learned about the world. And he and his partner, uh, Joshua Fry, did these long expeditions to the Ohio River beyond. And you know, they turned what happened into the jungle of mountains in the Appalachians to a very coherent set of ridges and valleys. Suddenly, you can see these places as real places, not as just imagined places. And these are places that you could occupy yourself to plan for that. So mapping is very much a tool of empire. It's a tool of dispossession. And um, Native Americans, especially in the far west, understood this perfectly, which is why they harassed and sometimes killed surveyors, or at least got lost, right? Mm -hmm. um, because they understood what that knowledge meant, and not having kept, kept the far west undeveloped for a long time. Please join me in thanking Professor Anderson.